You are listening to the Evolution Exchange podcast, a platform we've created to bring the Nordic tech community together. My name is Charlotte Roberts and I'm your host. So um, firstly, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone um, for joining today. Um, Of course, we're going to be discussing how to be effective at hiring for data teams. Um, So before we get started, if everyone would like to give a short introduction um, about themselves, that would be lovely. Um, So I'll go ahead with Nina, if you could go first, that'd be great. Yes, absolutely. So I'm Nina. I'm currently working as an AI engineering manager at Swedbank in uh, Stockholm, Sweden. And uh, I have a team consisting of um, DevOps slash MLOps engineers. Uh, I recently came from uh, Nordea Finance where I worked as uh, as head of data analytics engineering, uh, where I also had, I had more of a data analytics uh, engineering uh, people. So so they were more data analysts, Uh, but I also had uh, a team consisting of different roles. So they had, they were data stewards and also I had product owners. Um, so um, yes, I live in uh, central Stockholm together with my fiance and, uh, and uh, uh, one thing that I'm passionate about uh, in terms of work is to drive change in the data world. So that was a short introduction, passing over to perhaps Rebecca. Lovely. Thank you very much for that, Nina. Yeah, and Rebecca, if you'd like to go next, that'd be lovely. Absolutely. So uh, I'm Rebecca. I head up the machine learning team at Zettle by PayPal. We're a team of seven machine learning engineers uh, working on all kinds of problems within the Zettle part of PayPal. So we work on providing tools and services for small businesses to to succeed. Um, And uh, I've been at Zettle for about five years. So I've uh, been part of this journey where we started from from very few, if if any, sort of machine learning use cases to today when we have quite a lot. And it's it's been interesting to see all the things that have changed during that time. So that's something I hope we can maybe cover today. Um, And outside of work, I uh, love doing outdoors activities. I'm a big fan of uh, climbing, um, mountain biking. I do cross-country skiing, some ski touring. Um, That's uh, that's where my main interests are. And I guess over to Lucas then. Yeah, I love that. Thank you very much for that introduction. And uh, Lucas, last but certainly not least. Cool, thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm Lucas. I'm, uh, I'm originally from Brazil. Uh, I started my career here in Brazil, and uh, three years ago, uh, my wife and I, we moved to Sweden, Stockholm, uh, where, I, where I started working with Klarna. Uh, now I'm currently working with Tinka uh, in the past one month. So as a head of data science and data engineering there, Tinka is a buy now, pay later player in the Dutch market. My passions about work is, well, data science overall and data engineering. I, I really like to read about it and learn new stuff that is always uh, popping up every day. Uh, outside of work, it's similar to Rebecca, I would say. So hiking, mountain biking, that's like uh, uh, good, good stuff that I like to do. Uh, unfortunately, in Stockholm, I think we don't have many mountains, right? So that's uh, one problem. But uh, apart from that, yeah, cycling around. 
Oh, lovely. Thank you very much for everyone's introduction. Um, well, with that, then I'll, we'll go ahead and sort of jump into uh, to the questions. Um, so the first question is from Rebecca. So, Rebecca, your question is um, when starting to build a data team, where do you start and how does it change over time? Uh, so if you'd like to give a bit of background behind that question and then we'll go ahead and and jump in as well. Sure, I guess it comes from an observation from from my time at Zettel that our needs have changed quite dramatically over time and we've tried some different forms of, of organizing the various data teams at Zettel. So, so I was hoping to hear basically what the rest of you think about this and what's the kind of right way to start. Obviously, that's different from company to company, but I think there's some uh, some interesting approaches you can take when when you do start from from zero or start from kind of something small and intending to grow it bigger. So that's the background of the question. Sure, so if um, Nina, do you want to go ahead and go first with that one? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I would say that, I mean, how it depends on where you are, uh, what level you are on. Uh, if you are starting from scratch, then you probably don't need uh, data engineers directly. Uh, you probably need perhaps a business analyst or someone that can, uh, a product manager that can set set the vision and the roadmap uh, to, and the perhaps kind of, um, what is it that we are going to do? And then after that, hiring for, for the right competence that can uh, perform the task. Uh, so so that, is, uh, that is if you start from scratch, but if you have already started, but you, you want to evolve the tooling or perhaps take the next step, then I would uh, then I would say to try as as much as possible to to skill up the people that are already in the team, um, and then perhaps also look look after if there's a special competence that uh, that is totally new. Then you have to um, yeah <laughs> you have to go out in the market and find that. Of course, sometimes um, upskilling is not the only way and enough. That's my point. Lucas, did you have to add to that? Sure. Uh, well, my point of view, I think uh, I would start hiring more generalist uh, uh, people. So people with a more generalist knowledge. And that's why, and the reason why is, is mainly because I believe that uh, when you're building something from scratch, you need someone that knows uh, that ha has the overall picture, right? Uh, so like a, if you hire an spe specialist that really knows about uh, just a certain subject, maybe maybe it's great for a big team and a, and a company that is already quite mature. But uh, if you're starting from scratch, you need someone that is quite flexible and, uh, and versatile as well uh, to be able to connect all the pipes and, uh, and make all the settings and setup. That's the way I see it. Now, the second point would be I would... I would search for someone that is more senior, especially if the team is quite small, because the, uh, I would expect that the person, uh, the person to be quite independent. And then if the, if the, if the data engineer is, is mid-level or junior or even an intern, uh, you would have to spend more time with the, with the guidance. Uh, not saying that a senior data engineer wouldn't need any guidance at all. It's just that, of course, the time that you would spend, it would be uh, less than with a mid-level junior intern. Uh, and later on, so uh, through time, of course, I would start to to search for mid-level junior interns. 
because first it's good to have a, a diversity in the team and also you, you come up with uh, different points of view with, of, of people that just started their careers, for example. So that would be my approach. I would think that like one really important aspect when starting to build a team is is I think that the first thing you need is people who are passionate about solving the right problems, not necessarily like the experts who know the perfect solution to each of those problems, but who can kind of ask the right questions and make sure that you're not spending time on on the wrong things like early on. So so I I really agree with sort of hiring generalists, but but I would also say that like I think I think that's the part that's easiest to kind of make mistakes on is to start moving in the wrong direction and spend a lot of time and resources, whether it's on like choosing tooling or how to set up your infrastructure or even something like building your data culture. It's it's kind of easy to get it wrong early on. So so I think that's maybe one of the best investments you can make is to to start by bringing in people who can help set the direction and and make sure that you're you're working on the right problems. Yeah. I totally agree to that. I mean, hiring too much of a generalist could be kind of a, then um, you might risk to to get scattered uh, all over the place. But I definitely understand what you mean, Lucas, that the generalist uh, that you can place uh, where the direction is set uh, is, is also good to have, uh, of course. Definitely. Did Lucas, did you have more to add to that then? No, not really. I think I already made my point here. Perfect. Lovely. Well, we'll move on to the next question then. Uh, so the next question is um, Lucas's question. Um, and this is, so what is the question um, you asked during the interview that you believe tells you the most about the candidate? Um, so I think this is a really great question. Uh, so Lucas, if you want to go ahead and give us a bit of background behind this question and then we'll open it up to the group. Yeah, sure. So I think the rationale behind it was that, uh, of course, time is is, uh, is a valuable resource that we have, right? And we can't overspend uh, interviewing everybody. So what, what I was thinking, uh, what I always think when I interview someone is, okay, how can I, how can I take, how can I make the most out of this time that I have with uh, him or her? So it could be either 60, uh, 30 minutes or one hour. Um, the idea is that uh, I, I need to evaluate uh, evaluate the candidate. And uh, if I, uh, uh, quote unquote here, if I fail, and if I, if I pass someone to the next step, I'm not only spending my time and the candidate's time, but also whoever is going to interview next uh, for, a, for a role that might not be a fit. So uh with that in mind uh i think that's like uh the, the biggest question that i have always uh what could be the best question to ask during the interview uh to tell the most out of the the candidate so i don't know if rebecca or uh, you know yeah i can i can start with one question uh it might seem quite boring but it's the it's standard question tell me about yourself because uh, how, how you interpret uh, or how you analyze how the, the candidate is elaborating, that's the valuable, um, that valuable information you get. For example, I mean, if um, it depends on how, how they choose to respond tells much about uh, who they are. If they are very short, uh, if they are elaborative, 
uh, how how in depth they go to explain what they know and to walk you through the the experience they have, and also what they choose to highlight um, and perhaps not to highlight because that will give you hints on okay where should I dig deeper? Uh, what is this candidate's strength? Uh, you also learn about the how they speak and how they kind of communicate and also how they structure themselves in their head. So, so asking that open question is my favorite, but of course you can be, you can have some other golden questions as well. But that's the classic one. Tell me about yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Very <laughs> simple, but very effective. I think that question as well. <laughs> Definitely. Rebecca? Yeah, I definitely agree with with most of what you said. I could just add sort of another angle. One question that that I ask in hiring manager interviews, depending a little bit on the role that we're hiring for, is I have a, a case type question where I describe a scenario where this candidate is then like I, you know, they, we pretend that they're already working in the machine learning team at Settle. And uh, I describe this interaction with a made up product owner who comes to them and describes like a problem. And, and I ask them sort of, what would you do? Like, what would you say to this product owner and how would you approach this? So it's a very open question. Um, and I like it because candidates will take very different paths kind of in this. Some will focus completely on like one angle of the problem and others on something else. Uh, obviously the question is sort of machine learning related. Some will focus a lot on the implementation, others on like the evaluation and some on like the, the actual interaction with the product owner and the process around it. And I really like that because it tells me a lot about the candidates. And then sometimes I can ask like guiding questions if I feel there's one area that I would like to hear their thoughts more on, which they didn't cover. But but I like that it's open so that I, I can basically extract a lot of signal from where they choose to take it. And, and there's really no right or wrong answer. But it often tells me a lot on whether this candidate is relevant for what we're looking for right now, um, just noticing which direction they choose to take. Some, somehow it's like uh, understanding the, their way of working, right? So you basically, you're creating a business case and, the, and, you, and you want to see how they, how they work, yeah. In addition to that, I, uh, the question that I, sometimes I, I also make during the interview is uh, I ask the candidate to explain how they approach a problem they have never worked with before. So w- what, I, what I want to understand is their line of thought. So uh, w- w- how, what, what, what type of questions they make uh, if they don't know how to solve the problem, right? And how, how do they search for the, for the answer? That's more again. There's no right and wrong answer. It's more like uh, seeing how the how the person leads with uh, deals with a problem. I think there's one one really tricky thing though with asking because I think we all agree here that these like open questions are good because you you learn a lot. But I think there's there's one downside here, and that's that it's very hard to objectively say if a candidate did well or not on a question like that, and sort of whether they should pass the interview. And I think that's a little bit dangerous because that sort of opens up the door to, to very subjective decisions on, on who passes and not. Um, and, and I think that's hard. Like we've solved it often by basically creating a list of points that we're hoping the candidate will bring up. And then we count how many do they bring up. That way we're kind of not saying there's a right or wrong solution. We're not saying you have to like bring up all these points, but we're saying you need to bring up at least like three of the eight or something like that. That's that's one approach we've come up with, but I'm curious if the rest of you have any other like thoughts on that and how to 
how to not make it completely subjective when the question is very open-ended mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. No, but I, I have a similar approach as well. I have a kind of checklist uh, what they choose to go through. Um, so it's the similar. I think that we all have the similar uh, thought of, of this uh, how, I mean, how what we want from a question, but we ask them differently and then they are open and then we are analyzing them. But I totally agree that uh, to be, to not be too fluffy, uh, there needs to be some kind of checklist so that you can also um, you can also kind of uh, yeah assess in a very uh, very fair way uh, how how it, how it goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, I don't have like a, a scorecard like like you were saying, Rebecca. Like saying, oh yeah, check check check. Uh, but actually, I think I have a kind of like a, a mental checklist. So there's some stuff that I'm expecting from the business case, and then I see if the if the candidate covered or covered or not during the during the explanation. Um, yeah, hopefully I'm being more objective than subjective there. So. Definitely. Well, uh, we'll move on um, to sort of the next question now then. Um, so that's Nina's question. So um, how to balance the test evidence base versus um, experience and performance on the interviews? Um, so Nina, if you'd like to give a bit of background behind your question and then we'll jump straight in. Yes. So, um, I mean, you have the evidence based test. So like a personality test and logical reasoning test and those kind of things, uh, you get the result. Uh, sometimes you have candidates that have better results than others, but have been very quiet on the interview, not elaborating uh, enough um, and so on. Also, there are aspects like uh, experience, number of years of experience, uh, kind of... Um, the drive and the overall performance on the interview. So I would like to hear from you how you, how you balance and how, you, uh, how much weight you put into the different aspects of uh, the evidence-based test and the, uh, the checklist test and also the actual personality and the performance on the interview, uh, but also likability, for example. Uh, I think, uh, well, the, the way I see, the, the way I, I, I do and I see it is more or less like this. Let's, let's say it's a pre-screen call, right? So you're trying to see if, it, if it's a profile matching, if the candidate is, uh, uh, yeah, could be a good fit for the team and so on. Uh, the way I see it is I split the, the interview into two. The first part is, about, is more about the CV and uh, the history and the, the communication than the, let's say, overall soft skills uh, of the candidates. So I try to understand uh, how is their storytelling? How do, how do they tell their story and how do they elaborate on the project that they have worked with in the past? Uh, then the second part, it's either a business uh, case, just as uh, Rebecca was mentioning in the previous question, or some type of pair programming exercise that I do with them just to see, okay, how do they how do they develop on, on this uh, with with my assistance or not uh, to to measure a bit more on the on the hard skills as well. To be honest with you, at the moment I'm actually giving 50-50 uh, 
with regards to to weight or to, to the weight. So basically, yeah, I think the candidate needs to to be uh, either good on both or at least okay in one of them. So if he's uh, if he's bad in one of them, so I think it's a no go at least for me. Yeah, we don't really have any any kind of like waiting in that sense. We have a sequence of interviews, first the hiring manager interview and then two technical interviews with a home assignment in between. And the way it works is basically you need to pass every step in order to progress to the next one. And if you pass the last one, then we make a final decision. But there is usually fairly strong signal there. If you've passed all of them, we're kind of already happy. So we sort of evaluate one one thing at a time which makes this waiting discussion a little little hard. But one thing that we really try to do is, I think we focus a lot on, on testing skills, but we we want to really test for skills that are that are relevant sort of on the job. So we, we test for things that we would actually be working on ourselves. A lot of our questions that we ask are based on, on um, actual problems that we've encountered during the past couple of years. And, and that means we do put a lot of weight on how the candidate performs there. Again, not, not requiring a specific right or wrong answer, but basically evaluating how do they approach this. And, and if we had been working with them, like alongside them, and this is how they approach the problem, would that have been helpful for us? Like, are they bringing relevant perspectives and, and things like that? Um, so, so I would say that testing does have a lot of weight for us. Um, but that's of course a little bit dangerous because the candidate could be like nervous or have a bad day and and we don't want to we don't want to exclude people who who are uncomfortable in an interview situation so so that's really hard like not not pushing putting too much pressure basically on the candidate but that's why we have a combination of of testing in like the live interviews we have sort of a code review parts as you described we have um, some some case type questions that are technical, and then we also have a home assignment. So that way we give the candidate a chance to kind of show off their skills in several different settings. Um, so so we're hoping at least that that helps a little bit to, to mitigate the, the pressure part of this. But but I would say we do focus a lot on, on testing um, because we think that works better than than kind of assuming that someone will be good at something because they've done it for like a certain number of years. We we prefer to test for that skill if we can. Yeah, totally. Uh, uh, regarding what you, what you just mentioned about the trying to have different steps so you can evaluate the, the, the candidate with different perspectives. Uh, there's That's something that I, I was thinking a lot. It's, it's quite controversial when it comes to pair programming, right? There's a, there are a lot of people that actually say it's a bit against it because you're basically putting the candidate in the spotlight. And I understand that, I, I get that. But at the same time, like, uh, uh, what are the alternatives, right, that you have? You, can, you could send a case study and then do some type of interview just about the case study, and then you, just to check like the overall knowledge of their, their code and so on. But that also is, is quite time consuming. So it's kind of like a trade-off. Uh, it's hard to, to tell like what, what is the best way to, to proceed. I, for now, I'm actually seeing like uh, the, the pair programming exercise as a, as a good one. Uh, it's, it's 30 minutes. You try to be friendly and, and supportive uh, with the candidate as well. And hopefully everything goes well and uh, because the, the candidate has a, a positive uh, experience. I really like pair programming too as as like a, a method. It's, it's, it's a good way of creating like a friendly atmosphere. And, and I think one thing we've added recently is is a component where we do basically code review rather than writing code. 
uh, I think that's a little bit easier to handle if you're kind of nervous and under pressure that you get to review code and sort of point out what some mistakes or something that you think could be improved or ask questions about the code. And again, it sort of mimics something that you would actually be doing on the job. You would be doing tons of code reviews. Um, that's that's one way of achieving much of testing for the same things, but without requiring the candidates to to actually like sit and code a lot of things live, which could be hard if you're very nervous. Definitely, I think um, that kind of leads nicely into um, into the next question as well. Um, so it's um, during the interview process, how can we ensure uh, we test for skills that are re relevant for predicting performance on the job? Um, so I know that this is one of the questions that you wanted to ask Rebecca as well, because I know that um, sometimes a lot of um, in, within interview processes there can be sort of logic tests or tests um, involved that you know. Don't don't necessarily have anything to do with the actual job or that you'll be doing uh, once you've got the position. Um, so it's kind of like how can we, how can we ensure that we're only sort of um, testing for skills that are relevant rather than you know a blanket test for for every candidate. Um, so if Rebecca, if you want to go ahead and um, start us off, that'd be great. Sure. I, I we kind of already touched on this. So, but I, yeah. but I guess my where I'm coming from here is. The hiring process is really all it's it's a data problem. We're like collecting data points and trying to predict an outcome, which is success on the job. And and I think no one knows exactly how to do that and what are the best predictors, but but we're all trying to get as close as possible. That's the whole point of the process, right? And and um, I think uh, it's it's interesting to think about it from that perspective as like trying to capture as much signal as possible along the way. And and what we've arrived at is what I mentioned earlier. So aiming to test things that are very similar to actual problems we've encountered. That way we know that we're not asking the candidate to do something which is completely unrelated to what they would be doing, like implementing some search algorithm on a whiteboard. Like we would never we would never ask them to do that once they're once they're hired. So so we try to design the interview questions to be as close as possible to to reality. Sort of that's that's been our approach. But I'm very curious uh, to hear your perspectives on this. Uh, what what do you think sort of carries a lot of signal in this problem of of predicting who will do well on the job? Yeah, I think I, I think my approach is is, uh, is is aligned with what you what you said, Rebecca. It's it's, it's about for me, it's about uh, trying to understand what what is fundamental for the for the daily work, uh, kind of like the basics, and and try to cover that uh, initially in the in the in the interview, uh, and then on, on the other on the other side, at least that's that's quite a kind of, kind of like a personal opinion that I have. I I usually try to seek uh, candidates with a good learning curve rather than already having the knowledge of a certain tool or a certain technique, for example. Uh, I, I don't really, I don't really mind if if the customer, if the candidate already has uh, experience with, uh, for example, AWS Redshift uh, data warehouse. As long as the uh, as long as the candidate already has some experience with cloud computing, uh, have worked with any type of data warehouse, they will learn in one or two days, right? So uh, any tool that you might be might be using. Mm -hmm. So that's at least is the, is the way I. I I face it, and that's the way I uh, I, I try to organize the, the process. So focus yeah. more on the learning curve, the basics, and the fundamentals. If they have that covered, then most likely it will be a a, a good match. Yeah, definitely. I I can echo on that, Lucas, because uh, I mean today it's quite hard to to find the right competence that should have exactly the tools that. Uh, 
should have worked with the tools that you have now. So it's about the learning curve. That's why I, I also like the general uh, evidence-based test. For example, how well you perform on the logical reasoning uh, or the personality as well, how, how motivated you are to, to learn new things and pick up on new things and, um, and so on. So uh, I would say that I would, these kind of designed uh, tests, um, I haven't used them so much. Uh, it could be also so for, for that we, uh, I mean, for example, currently we don't have them. Um, I mean, we are working with very new things. So to design a very good test, uh, you should have already kind of, uh, working team that have that knows knows a lot about uh about what they are doing and so on so you probably shouldn't be very very new uh as well um so yeah that's, that's a very relevant perspective that does make it a lot harder to to design questions that are that are very specific to to your team i i agree what um when you, I really like what both of you said about like identifying people with a steep learning curve. I think that makes a lot of sense. But but how do you do that? Like, what are what are some things you'd ask to to try to evaluate? I think there's some indi indicators, right? Uh, one of them is uh, when, when you talk when you talk with the candidate and you try to understand how they how they learn new things, or or even some basic questions like what is the last last thing that you have uh, that you have learned uh, and when was it? If it's like, well, I don't remember. That's like a, maybe a bad indicator, right? So maybe it's a person that is already accommodated in, a, in the position that they are. So maybe that's not what, what you want, or, or maybe it is. Uh, it depends on the on the on the profile that you're searching for and the, the role, right? Uh, that's one thing. Uh, also, the way they learn and uh, and uh, how open are they? Like questions like, okay, we're working with a certain tool here. I saw that in your CV. You don't have that. Uh, are you willing to to learn that? And you can get a bit from their reaction, right? Uh, and the mentality and so on. That, that's at least the way I try to do it. Hmm. No, I do the similar thing. Also, uh, you can look at their, their history, kind of have they picked up uh, various tools? Uh, are they, I mean, how do they talk about the, the tooling and the things that they are doing? Um, you can get a hint of the, if they are willing to learn something new and how they how how they have done it before as well. Some really good points there for each of them. Uh, Rebecca, did you have anything to add to that just before we move on to the next question? No, I'm very happy with these answers. <laughs> Perfect, lovely. Well, we kind of touch on this one. It sounds quite similar to uh, one of the previous questions, but just to delve a little bit deeper, um, what is the most important question you asked during an interview? Um, I suppose this one is a very difficult question to ask because is the one one question that you can ask that is more important than the rest? Um, I, I'm not too sure, but I'll open it up to you guys. I can add one perspective. Uh, one one thing that we often look for. 
So, so we ask a lot of technical questions, like there's many of them throughout the process and there's many interviews and there's the home assignment. And usually, regardless of the candidate and, and sort of how experienced they are and how, how well they do, there will be at least one point, usually several, where they miss out on something that we are aware of. They will like miss some angle or they will misinterpret something or they'll not remember to check for something, etc. And, and one thing that we do is we, we sort of test how they react when we point that out. Um, so, so I, I wouldn't say this is like one question, but it's, it's, a it's, it's a perspective that's important to our process is, is sort of, um, almost, almost like confronting the candidate. Obviously we try to do this in a very nice way, uh, but, but kind of pointing out that they might have made a mistake or that there's some angle they didn't consider and, and basically seeing how they react. I think that's one really important part of the process because that's something that does happen in normal work. Like we want that to happen. We want team members to spot each other's mistake or suggest new angles or perspectives that they haven't thought of. And, and we want to see sort of how does the person react and are they willing to kind of take that feedback and, and kind of work on it or, or yeah, um, that's, that's one thing which is, which I think is important that we have not covered already. <laughs> No, definitely. Um, I think I think with that as well, I think um, even throughout sort of the interview processes, um, the way that you structure the, the interview as well can be very important. And um, I find trying to make people feel as relaxed as possible and having more of a casual conversation throughout rather than it just being sort of a question and answer. You get more from more from the candidate by asking questions in in a more relaxed manner. And going back to what Nina, you said at the, at the start, even asking um, from the offset saying, tell me about yourself. I think by asking someone to tell tell um, tell you about themselves, it just opens opens them up um, from the offset really, doesn't it? So I think that can um, definitely um, start the interview in a, in a good way. Lucas, did you have one sort of um, question that you thought was the most important question? Yeah, well, uh, again, uh, as Rebecca said, it's, it's quite hard, right, to pick this one, but uh, maybe, um, I ask the candidate to explain something that they understand a lot, and I try to to see like yeah, the way they communicate, the way they, they resonate, the way they uh, yeah they make their point and elaborate on whatever they they want to talk about. It's a quite open question as well, but uh, I think it also tells a lot about uh, the profile of the person. Definitely. And I would say that uh, one question that I like is, uh, tell me about your strengths, basically, uh, because that is uh, something that they will then highlight what is the, uh, what are their expertise areas. Uh, and then that can lead to kind of asking at least the, the, the relevant questions first, so that you know what to ask for and what you can get uh, more into. Um, so it's a little bit like the the open question about tell me about yourself. You you would notice where the weak points are as well when you are asking the the the, the strength points. Uh, so you see what they are bringing up first, and what in the for example in the resume you you don't bring up, which can tells you tell you things. Uh, undercover. 
Yeah, no, yeah. that makes sense. How many, um, just out of curiosity as well, how many sort of um, interview stages do you think is sort of um, the ideal or opt optimum sort of interview stages? Or, or do you think it should be different for, you know, different roles and that sort of thing? We we don't have so many interview stages that I know that some other companies have. Um, and I think that it's... Um, uh, from my perspective, it doesn't have to be 10 interview stages because that is also uh, tough and, uh, you know, time consuming for the, for, the, uh, for the person that is applying for the role. Uh, so I, I believe in simplicity, but of course you should do it with, um, you should do it granularly, you should have you know, you should hire the, the best person for the for the job, but not to be too complicated to bother the the candidates. Uh, so, yeah, I, I will not give a number of uh, interview steps, but it should be enough. Um, but you should also have that in mind that going to 10 interviews, that is quite time consuming and then the candidate doesn't get the, the job in the end um, and will be very unhappy with the process. I agree, definitely. Yeah. I, I don't have a number of, uh, of interviews to, to be made, but uh, I do have a, a, a number for the amount of time. I, I would say like less than a month, right? The whole process should take less than a month at least. Uh, and the reality is that I think, uh, I believe that uh, it might take longer uh, in most, uh, most companies. Definitely. How do you ensure that it takes less than a month then? Well, that's about the, the pipeline, uh, the hiring pipeline and uh, yeah, putting people accountable for each, uh, each stage uh, and tracking the time since the first interaction till the proposal to be made or not. Yeah, that makes sense, definitely. Okay, lovely. We'll, we'll move on to um, sort of the final question now then. Um, so the last question is, how do you create an effective team whilst ensuring a diverse team culture? Um, so Nina, I'll open up, up this one to you first. Um, diversity is very important, uh, not only in terms of gender diversity, but also the background diversity um uh, and also kind of where they come from the background uh in terms of what they have done uh, before uh but also um perhaps also the geographical uh and gen or sorry the the age and uh, and so on so there are multiple aspects to diversity and uh, how to keep it efficient uh, how to keep the, the, the kind of team efficient while being diverse. Uh, I think that I would like to change that question, the angle of the question a little bit, because I would say that uh, today, at least in my market, there are, it's hard to recruit for diverse teams because the, the competency that we are seeking for tends to be very uh, non-diverse. So that is that it's difficult to have diverse team, but um, but definitely it's uh, 
um, my perspective and my my uh, how I how, how I perceive it is that the diverse teams are performing better because they can challenge each other and and there will not be one way of thinking or one kind of one way they do it in in one culture that this is how we do it uh, because then it will be very uh, very um, very narrow way of doing things so the diverse team in terms of ages gender uh, background what they studied those kind of things are very important uh, to create an efficient and innovative team uh, which you want to be uh, when you are creating data teams because you're creating data models you're creating code you're you want them to be you know thinking different ways and um, yeah doing peer reviews and so on to to see things from from different uh, different perspectives nice Rebecca Yes, I, <laughs> where do I start? I'm really passionate about this topic. Um, I should have maybe said in my intro that apart from, uh, from my work at Zettel, I also, I'm one of the founders and organizers of Women in Data Science Sweden. <laughs> so I'm really passionate about sort of improving gender diversity in particular, but of course all other kinds of diversity as well in, in our field. And I think it's super hard. I think no one has like a good answer to how, how do we fix the diversity problem. Um, but I think there's a couple of things that, that can be done, and there's a few things that we have good experience of doing. Um, and, and one is to focus a lot on like the early parts of our recruiting funnel. So essentially making sure we bring in a diverse set of candidates, which means in practice that we sponsor a lot of events. We, before the pandemic, we used to host a lot of meetups and things like that at, the, at uh, our office. Um, we, uh, we, yeah, we sponsor uh, events, conferences. Um, we also make sure that we're kind of seen in good places. So people from the team attend meetups and conferences and, and we make sure that others are aware that we exist. Um, we sponsor sometimes like specific events such as Women in Data Science. We have hosted uh, Pi Ladies for meetups, stuff like that. Uh, but we also do a lot of active outreach in our recruiting. So basically we choose not to settle for only people that apply for jobs because that tends to be a relatively homogenous group of people. Um, so, so we do a lot of active sourcing uh, as a way of ensuring that we have more diverse people kind of entering our, our funnel or recruiting pipeline. Um, and, and then finally, I think uh, one, one important thing is that we talk about it in the team. Like whenever we're about to start a round of recruiting, we kind of take a moment to reflect on where are we at in the team right now? Are there any sort of aspects of diversity that we're doing particularly bad on? And that's just a way to create awareness of sort of who are we as a group right now? One thing that we often conclude is we're, we're a, a young team. And to some extent, I think that comes from the fact that we're working in an area that's so new. We're doing machine learning. No one has done or very few people have done machine learning for 30 years. Um, but, but that's something that we're aware of, that that's like a, an aspect of diversity that we're not doing so well on. And just kind of repeating that and reminding ourselves once in a while, I think, is helpful. It makes us aware that, that this, is some, this is an area where we could do better, basically. Great, great points, Rebecca. 
so I, I also agree with Nina that I think it's uh, uh, it, it can be challenging to 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 hire and to build a diverse team because yeah, as you said, like uh, the, the the public can be smaller if you if you're searching for certain characteristics. Uh, now answering the question with regards to the first part, the effective part, I think if you hire good matches for for your team. Uh, and you have the, the right tooling and the the the, the right uh, techniques with with a with a good uh, guidance. Uh, most likely, you're gonna have an effective team, right? That's the first part. Uh, with regards to the second part, uh, regarding uh, diversity, I personally think it's uh, actively. So how can you how can you have a diverse team? You you have to actually actively go go after that and, uh, and search for uh, for for different uh, different groups to actually yeah as Rebecca said to, to put inside the in the beginning of the, the tunnel to the funnel to so you have that uh, in, in, by the end of it so I, I personally don't buy much when, when I when I read around like uh, yeah, this, I don't know what the people in the community saying, yeah, no, I, I we built a diverse team, and it, it wasn't something actively; it was na natural. And uh, I don't buy that. Uh, to be really honest with you, I actually think you, you have to actively go and, and do that. It's not something that will happen; it won't. So, no. um, a few a few months ago, or maybe a year ago, there was a big company here in Brazil that actually started a trainee program only for black people. And then, of course, like yeah, it, it was a bit controversial for some. Uh, but then, like the, the CEO, who is a woman, by the way, she basically said, "No, we we're gonna actively search for for black people because half of the the population of Brazil is black, but uh, we don't see that reflected in the high hierarchy of uh, of the big companies that we have uh, in Brazil. So you actively have to go there and actually do something, right? Do something about it. Yeah, that's my point." Definitely. I think there's some definitely some um, really good points there uh, from everybody. Well, I'll go ahead and stop it there. Then we'll thank you everybody for uh, for listening and thanks for everyone for taking part as well. I really appreciate it.